0: In the choir, and uh, if you want to after church, that'd be great. Uh, I'm sure Stacy would love that. Um, if you have your Bible, it's Philippians chapter 1. I want to begin reading in verse number 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that is, it became known throughout the whole Imperial Guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, and the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance uh, pray one more time with me would you please father we again come before you thankful for your word thankful for this time we can gather as your people let's to lay aside all of those things that uh, distract us and have carried our thoughts away even this morning already and lord help us to hear what the spirit says to your church help me lord I pray for not me only, but many of the uh, men who will be standing throughout this region proclaiming your word. We just pray for uh, a special work of your spirit this morning among your people. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, in 1521, uh, Luther made his famous stand before the Catholic Council uh, at the Diet of Worms. It was during a a great time of momentum during the Reformation, and Luther was brought before the council not to give a defense for his writings, which he thought he would have an opportunity to do. He was given the opportunity to recant, repent, or be condemned, excommunicated and condemned as a heretic. Luther makes his famous speech that some of you may know may have a coffee cup That, that has it on it, I don't know. Uh, the concluding that um, that sound foundational statement, here I stand, uh, reminding us that his conscience is held captive to the word of God, here I stand, I can do no other, may God have mercy on my soul. Well, uh, that didn't go over very well with the Catholic council. Uh, excommunicating him and actually putting a bounty on his life, Luther heads home. Uh, back to Wittenberg, and he is kidnapped in in the dead of night and taken off to a castle where he will live for the next year uh, as almost a a prisoner of his own making. There he would live in obscurity. Only one person in the castle would know who he is. He would grow his beard out and look kind of shaggy and kind of like we do in wintertime, some of us. Uh, and he would live under the guise of Knight George or Sir George while he was there. Uh, as you may have read, if you're familiar with the time of the Reformation, it was a, a very volatile uh, time for the, the nations that it was involved with, where it began in Germany and, and France and all the other places. But it was uh, it was also a, a time of almost revival as Luther began preaching the doctrine of justification by faith. His writings and all the other things and, and the movement of the church was just almost like setting the world on fire. Finally, someone God had raised up to stand against the, the Catholic Church and the Pope and stand upon the conviction of the word of God and that alone. And yet here is the man who in the time when the Reformation needed a leader, needed someone standing in the front guiding the ship, here was a man who's exiled to what he would re- refer later to, the, his Isle of Patmos uh, in the castle uh, at Wartburg. He would spend 10 months or a little over 10 months here and, and living a life of an of undercover knight. That sounds kind of exciting to some of us. I think we might kind of like that. Well, while we see even in Luther's own response to, to his desire to be out in the thick of the battle, God and his providence removes him from the limelight, if you will. We might think that at a time when, uh, when the battle's on the line, a time when everything's exciting and moving forward, you don't bench your star quarterback. You don't put the third string guy in. That's just not the time you do it when the game's on the line for some of you guys to continue along with me this morning. Give you a few sports analogies. And yet here Luther is set aside for these 10 months. But it was also during this time that uh, Luther would also translate the Bible from, uh, from the original language, from into German, to where the Germans, the common people in the land, could have a Bible, the New Testament, in their language, which would be given to them the next year. He wrote many rat, uh, many tracts and commentaries during this season of his life while he was exiled. I think Luther, and, and I believe like Paul here in the writings uh, in front of us, and I, I think even in our own life, well, I don't think, I know, even in our own life, we we are faced with those things that remind us of our limitedness. That we're in situations where our desire is sometimes greater than our reach. And God does that sovereignly, He does that lovingly, He does that in our lives to remind us that He can do just as much with us in prison or set aside or under the weight of burden, whatever it may be, whether it's sickness or disease or or the burdens in our families that we carry, he can do just as much in our life and through us in those moments than he can in the midst of our strength, in the midst of our flexibility. I think that's important for us because we tend to lean towards strength as God's most useful weapon, at least our strength. And yet here we find the Apostle Paul as he is his beginning a verse number 12 a section which really goes through the end of the chapter uh, describing his affairs. The church would have naturally wondered what was going on, Paul, and how is things going? Uh, how is your time and, and, and maybe what are you eating? I don't know if they ask those kind of questions. We're, we're fascinated with that. We take pictures of our food and put them on Facebook all the time, so... Evidently, that's a big thing in our world, right, Johnny? So, what are you, what's going on with the Apostle Paul? And so, Paul begins to explain his affairs, beginning in verse number twelve. But but not only explaining his affairs, he, he he doesn't do it in a personal fashion as we tend to think. Give me all the details. You know, what's the guard's name that's chained to you? And and you know, did you make any friends while you're there? And all this other stuff that we tend to. To kind of fascinate ourselves with. Paul gives us none of that. And yet what he does do for us. He, he does inform us about what God is doing. But he also, he, he also expresses for us. He, he gives us an example of the very thing that he will command us to do in chapter number four. And that is rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. And some of us look at that, and not to jump to chapter number four, but it's hard not to, some of us look at that and, and wonder that it must have just been automatic for Paul. You know, that he just he he was just an automatic rejoicer. That was just his mentality. But I think we find that Paul was much like us as you read through the Corinthian letter, and he explains the the weight and even the depression and the and the heaviness of his ministry, despairing even of life in one point, and yet all of this, and, and through all of these experiences, he teaches us that his his confidence, his dependence upon God, and therefore, as we find in the letter in front of us, he will rejoice. He will rejoice. And so we want to look at this morning as we walk through 12 through 18, and, and we'll just take that section in our time this morning and and see how... Paul displays his joy or his rejoicing in his limitations, in his trial or his imprisonment. I was reminded of the uh, song we just sung, My Chains Fell Off. (laughs) I love that. And bondage of sin, it gives you that uh, that, uh, image of being in prison and being chained to the wall and there in the darkness... Of sin and despair and being alienated from God. And yet at the coming of the gospel the light shone forth and the chains falls off. And at the very moment I was thinking about those words as we were singing them. I was brought back to reminded what if because of that illumining moment. And that saving experience the chains come on. Because that's what you see with the apostle Paul. The physical chains of his imprisonment. I think that's important to note here in the book of Philippians and the other letters that Paul is, is living in Rome. He is in a house. He is, he is able to move about. He has freedom, some freedoms to do things, receive guests and friends. But, uh, but make no mistake about it, even with those kinds of freedoms, Paul is in chains. It's not metaphorically, he's not speaking hyperbole, he's not saying something, well, my time in Rome is so awful. Uh, It's kind of like being in jail. No, he's really, literally in chains. He speaks of this here in verse number 13 and 14 as he speaks of my imprisonment. And verse number 14, again, my imprisonment. We read at the end of his life in 2 Timothy where he finds himself in chains again. And so we need to understand that Paul is not a free man. He has certain freedoms and liberties, but he is not free. It's not that, oh, I want to go visit my whatever and leave Rome and go do whatever you want to do. That's not allowed. He's in chains. He's a prisoner, as we see. Colossians reminds us of this also when he's at the end of his letter. Uh, He adds this Statement, remember my chains. Remember my chains. It's the word given to us, which is a, a reference to the short chains that they would have would be attached to his wrist and the wrist of somebody else. Uh, that he everywhere he went, he he looked around and there was somebody attached to him. He couldn't leave him. Sometimes raising kids, we feel like that's the way it is, isn't it? Every time you turn around they're like under you. Well, this was in the literal sense. Imagine that someone being a grown man. And a grown man who was trained to kill. Uh, to add to that. And so what I want to understand that Paul is a prisoner. He is in chains. He is, he is placed in a position and, and rightfully so by his enemies and, and his adversaries and the false teachers. And all those seeing this as an opportunity to silence him and undo the work that he's done throughout the churches. No doubt if you were a Judaizer or, or the Pharisees uh, during this time, this would have been a great moment of rejoicing. Paul, the, the one who spread the doctrine of Christ among the Gentiles and the doctrine of grace is now set aside and, and put out of the way. And now, now gives opportunity for everyone else to run forward. It would be, in one sense, a great reason for us to come together to have a pity party, wouldn't it? Do we still have those today? I'm in jail. I shouldn't be in jail. I'm in jail. And then, you know, you can add to that however you want to in your own life. I'm sure if you need help, we'll find someone to help you get that started. Paul is a prisoner of the Lord. He is in chains. He is, he is connected to someone else. He spent four years uh, given to this this uh, imprisonment under the Roman government, well, let's notice also not only is he in change, but he makes this statement. We find it in 2 Timothy in the reading this morning, chapter number two and verse number nine and i 'll read that for you. <clears throat> At the end of his life, and, and, and the reason we connect it with this is because it is the very same thing we see in Paul's attitude as he is in prison here in Rome, as he is writing the letter to the Philippians. 2 Timothy 2 9, it says, For which I am suffering, speaking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the reason he is suffering. Um, he is bound with chains as a criminal. is bound with chains as a criminal. We're meant to take that literally. But he goes on and says in that verse, but the word of God is not bound. They've put me in jail. And here I am, I need a coat, and I want some company, and hurry along, Timothy. But make no mistake that the, the word of God is not bound. That what God is doing, how God is working in the midst of his imprisonment, not only at the end of his life, but at the beginning of his life, and we see here in Philippians, is still moving forward. That's the message he gives us in verse number 12. He says in Philippians, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Instead of impeding it, instead of standing in its way and slowing it down, as I'm sure the opposition would have wanted, and and as some may have feared, what will come of this new movement of Christianity in the church, and and when its leader who needs to be out doing stuff is put in jail. And Paul says, I've come to understand this. God has helped me to see this. I've witnessed it with my own eyes. That is actually, it's really served to advance the gospel. It's meant to propel it. It is meant to send it forward. The word here, advance, is a military term of of making advancements uh, in battle. He says that's what the gospel is doing. His imprisonment is is not a means to sideline him. His his trouble, his trial, his sorrow that he's experienced is, is meant to be a platform to further proclaim the glory of God. He is advancing. The gospel is advancing. Well, we know that that is true today, isn't it? The gospel is moving forward, it is moving forward with opposition. It is moving forward with those who hate it and would try to silence It is moving forward and in the midst of all sorts of perverseness and crookedness, sometimes within the church and sometimes out of the church. It's moving forward in countries that have made war with it, open declaration of war against the gospel in the Islamic countries. I was encouraged by an article I read from the Gospel Coalition dating back to April 7, 2021. It says in 1979... Uh, there was an establishment of a hardline Islamic regime in Iran. Over the next two decades, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecution. All missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles in Persian were banned and soon became scarce, and several pastors were killed. The church came under tremendous pressure, and many feared it would soon wither away and die. But the gospel advance. The article goes on to state, but the exact opposite has happened. In the last twenty years, more Iranians have come have come to Christian uh, have become Christian. Sorry, than in the previous thirteen centuries since Islam came to Iran. In in 1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Today, can you, can you guess how many Christians there are in Iran? Some estimate more than one million. The second fastest, at least at the time of this article, the second fastest growing nation Christianity moving in the nation was Afghanistan. And many of, being, many of which being reached by the Iranian people. That's what you see in Paul's line. Trying to put it out and trying to silence him and all that which would would seem to hinder in itself is it became a platform, a means by which God would advance his word, his gospel, his word to the ends of the earth. I wonder if Paul can look at his imprisonment and see all that's going on and say, I'm rejoicing. Because there's much to rejoice in. I was reading a Summary of James Coates, uh, uh, he was the pastor who was jailed for 35 days back uh, last year in Canada. As he was released from prison, he was walking out waving to the inmates, you know, as he was walking out of the the area with the chaplain. He said that the area where he was being held was just rattled with the, the cages being shaken and people yelling and screaming and kind of congratulating him as he was walking out walking out as a, as a victor in, in one sense, as what it was saying in the article. His confinement did not change his goal or his purpose, just his reach at that time. It was encouraging to read some of the ways in which he was allowed to minister to some of the inmates in that time. What I'm saying in all of this is many times what we seem or what we think in our own life which is meant to hinder and stop, whether it's our, our work, our service, the way we serve God or or His work in us is, is oftentimes the platform by which God chooses to glorify Himself. Paul later explains what he means by the advancement of the gospel. He goes on and says... In verse number 13, so it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, the, imprison- the imperial guard is those those guards which would have been selected, the elite, like our special forces in America. 900 soldiers chosen, selected and chosen to spend a term of somewhere 15, 12, 15 years of service to Caesar. Uh, one writing says they were king Because whoever their candidate was. For the next Caesar. They got the Caesarship. Because they would enact whatever they wanted by force. Actually even overthrowing Caesar at some times. And putting in their own Caesar in charge. It was a fierce. It was a, an elite group of soldiers. The imperial guard were those who Paul was chained to. And you think about it, not only here, but his time even going up to Rome, the opportunities Paul had to preach the gospel to people that he would have never been in contact with governors and kings and soldiers tied to or chained to his wrist, continually preaching the gospel, sharing his faith, giving a defense of the reason why I'm here is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can see it almost in your mind as he's sitting there talking to a group of believers from Rome as they come in and say, Paul, tell us about justification again. And so he just, he just lays it out, doesn't he? But it's not by works of the law that you're justified, he would say to them. And it, it's by faith, faith in Christ. He is the obedient one who has satisfied all the demands of the law. And, and because of this, he offers to us the free offer of, of grace. We're saved by grace, not by our works. And they say, so Paul, what do we do to receive this? Well, believe, repent of your sins and believe the gospel. And the whole time he's saying this to them, there's a guy sitting right next to him having to endure the whole thing. Some of us got dragged to church at times where you felt like you were being chained to them having to endure the service because you weren't a believer. And yet how God worked through that. Over and over, those in Pharaoh's house are hearing, or those not in Pharaoh's house, but those in Caesar's house those in this group of soldiers are hearing the gospel over and over that he is here and what he is here for. So you see that he's in chains and you see that, that as he is himself limited, as he is himself facing the end of his His abilities and, and constricted by what he can do, the gospel is continuing to flow out of uh, beyond the boundaries more and more. I want to also say, not only that. Look at the end of verse thirteen with me. It's the imperial guard that's hearing the gospel, but they're coming to understand that his imprisonment is for who? Christ. He's not there because he disobeyed God. He's not there because he got Agabus's prophecy wrong, and he shouldn't have went to Jerusalem. He's not there because of of misdeeds that he's done or because he's tried an insurrection in Rome. He's there because he's been obedient to God. He's he's suffering persecution, not against God, but for God. But more importantly, he's suffering persecution with Christ. The the S.V. says for, and I think the new... NIV says for here, the imprisonment for Christ. The New American Standard in King James probably has a better sense of what's being said here by the apostle. So that my bonds in Christ. You say, that sounds pretty much like the same thing. That's why some people put for and other people put in. I think there's an important distinction. Because what he is saying here is that my imprisonment is directly related to my union in christ my being who i am not just what i've done in my actions but at the very core of who i am that's why i'm here that's why he is going through this that's what they've come to understand it's because he is with christ in christ hey you do not need to read much of paul and his letters to find out that being in christ is key to his whole theology Ephesians 1, just a few statements that he makes. He says, it is in Christ we receive every heavenly blessing. It is in Christ we've been chosen. It is in him we have redemption. It is in him we have an inheritance, that we have hope and that we have a sealing of the Holy Spirit. Over and over reminding us. Paul wasn't at the wrong place at the wrong time. No, he was right where God wanted him to be being in Christ, this was the reason he was where he was. And the reason I think that's so comforting to me, and I think ought to be to you, is because you don't walk your path alone. The pain that you face, and the problems, and the trials, and the limitations, and the weakness that God reveals to you, shows you in your life, is not something outside of him. Necessarily, but he is reminded that he is with us in the middle of it. And sometimes we've got that crazy idea that the more sorrow we experience, the more trouble we experience, the less of God we know, or or the the farther He is from us, and and rightfully so because we hear it teached all over America. And yet Paul teaches us and brings us back. He says, "No, it's not the case. He is with us in this. It is." It is him being with us, his favor is with us, his grace extended to us, his presence in the middle of our weakness, in the middle of our trials, in, in the moments when we're at the end of our rope, it is a reminder that he is still with us and we are still in him. That's a great gift of the gospel. I think oftentimes we find our strength and we think that our usefulness is found in our our greatest abilities and the greatest measure of grace that we see is when we are the most strong or competent and yet paul even even in his life even at all that he done even that all all that god has done through him reminds us in second corinthians that we're just earthen vessels That oftentimes it is through our sorrows and suffering, it is through our weakness that God's glory shines forth. That he uses as a platform to glorify his name. It is with Christ. Paul rejoices because of the unique opportunity for the spread of the gospel in the circles that he would have no access to. But secondly, he shows us the joy. So he rejoices naturally. But secondly, he shows us the joy and rejoicing that is seen in the message of the gospel itself. Notice with me, beginning in verse number 15 or 14. There was two great effects that happened that he mentions here of his imprisonment. Verse number 14 gives both of those to us. And most of the brothers having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. There's some who preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. What is he saying? He's saying at least this, that as he sees God's hand at work in, in all of his, his limitations where he's at, suffering for Christ, one of the effects of that is not just only in his life and his ability to witness, but God using this as a platform not only for him, but for many, many others. They're looking to him and, and they're being encouraged by his faithfulness. Is that the way God works? You see a brother or sister going through a heavy trial and, and by their faithfulness, by their clinging to Christ, isn't it? Strengthening and give us courage. And God has meant it for it too. Reminding us that we don't live to ourselves. We don't die to ourselves. And, and, and our, own, our own faith sometimes, our own courage sometimes spurs up the courage of others. So Paul is saying here that, that, that courage and his hope and his comfort begets courage, hope and comfort in many others is a great reason to rejoice many of them are being strengthened by paul's stand for the gospel and many of them maybe even saying to themselves or one another as their little pastor councils get together saying, be strong brothers when you go back to ephesus or be strong when you go to colossians or whatever be strong when you preach the gospel remember our brother who's standing firm in the faith In the middle of Paul's affliction as he stood trusting God. God worked that for the, for the encouragement of many, many others. For the preaching of the gospel. Well it also had the other effect which is kind of an odd statement Paul makes here. There are some who are preaching out of love. The love for Christ and their love to carry on the work of the, of the ministry. And their, their love for Paul himself to carry on his labors. Though he's absent from them, but there's others who see this as a golden opportunity. That's what he says here. Some, verse number 15, look at it with me. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from a good will. Verse number 17, he says, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambitions, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Isn't that strange? it's natural in one sense but it's strange that paul at the end of the conclusion knowing some are preaching this way and some are preaching that way at the end the conclusion that paul would say would say i still rejoice and we could say that those who are preaching out of selfish ambition and vain glory are not preaching in a way that paul is condoning He's not saying that I'm with them in fellowship, and I'm giving my hand and, and saying that I'm, I approve of what they're doing. I, but what he does recognize is there's things that's just simply out of his control. They're preaching Christ as they see this opportunity to uh, to move forward, to advance their own means or their own ends. Now preaching Christ out of envy and. Rivalry probably more is their own envy and, and their own rivalry. That, that mindset that un, underlies their motivation. Which will entail, which will bring about eventually rivalry and envy in the church. Because that's what sin does. It, it begats sin. Wrong motivation and the wrong spirit and heart. It, it, it feeds like a plague. And destroys everything good, especially envy. You see him using the word here in verse number 17, that of selfish ambition. Aristotle, in his work on politics, they were writing about politics way before America was a country. Isn't that fascinating? And says, use this same word as a reference to the politician who got his position and his power from crooked ways. I know we don't think of people like that in our day, but we call them crooked politicians if there's such a thing. That's probably a wrong statement to make. Those who see an opportunity not necessarily to advance the gospel those who would be just as content in some ways to, to preach something out of the Reader's Digest or some magazine as they would be the gospel of Christ, whatever it takes to advance themselves. Now, evidently here, Paul is, is not condemning their message, so evidently what they are preaching is Christ, and, and so he doesn't mention anything about their, their message in that regard, but he is pointing out their motivation. There are self-seeking envious Pastors among God's people. And I would just say in passing, the world, the, the church is still filled with those today. Every opportunity to advance themselves. They see Paul out of the way as an opportunity to take leadership and control. And maybe as they show themselves worthy and competent, that, that Paul's influence and dominion in the churches or rule in the churches will be put down, like you see the super apostles being referred to in 2 Corinthians. While all this is going on, what can Paul do? What can you do when you've got a soldier attached to you? Well, Paul tells us what he does do he says eighteen, what then? In every way wherein in pretence or in truth, Christ proclaim, and in that I rejoice." In that I rejoice that Christ is being preached. He is being proclaimed, sometimes clumsily, sometimes out of the wrong motivation, sometimes poorly. But nevertheless, Christ is being preached, and Paul says, I rejoice. Isn't that a beautiful statement? Christian, doesn't that warm your heart and and remind you when you hear the name of Christ? You visit a church or you you maybe hear a, a, a sports player, there's very few and far between in our day, proclaim the name of Christ. He says Christ is being preached. Why? Because the power of God for salvation is the gospel. It's in Christ. I read of an, a young English man years ago who took one of George Whitfield's sermons. I may have shared this at some point in the past. And one of their habits was to, as they were having a good time in the evening, they would take a sermon and they would pretend they were that guy and, and they would, you know, kind of deliver the sermon kind of mockingly. This guy had a, a knack for emulating George Whitfield, who was a very, very bold and very um, artistic delivery style that Whitfield had and so the young man takes the sermon which was often printed in England in those days and he begins in jest and ends in sincerity you know I read that and I said how crazy is that the guy gets converted preaching his own sermon (laughs) halfway through the sermon God converts the young man and so he begins out of mockingly at the end he is pleading and uh, and 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 urging those there that's listening to him to come to faith in Christ. Where was the power? Was it in Whitfield? Was in the message Whitfield carried? There's a lot of things that we cannot rejoice in. We we can't join hands in. But one thing we do in the midst of our limitedness, we can rejoice that Christ is being preached. There's a lot of things you and I can't do about the war in Ukraine. There's things we can do. We ought to do those things we can do. And who knows that those 3.7 million refugees displaced from their home country hasn't been moved by the sovereign hand of God so that they may hear the gospel? Who knows? But I'll rejoice in the news sources and missionary reports of hearing Christ preach to these refugees and in places being opened up where they can hear the gospel. We can rejoice. In one sense, we're warned here that we're not to love the praise of men. as so easily of a trap that that can fall into. But in another sense, we're, we're meant to, to put great esteem and value on the message of Jesus Christ. It's a very same thing that saved you if you're saved this morning. You're saved by works or by man's wisdom or his cunning or his craftiness. You're saved by the gospel, by Jesus Christ, by the message which was delivered to us by Paul and Peter Throughout the history, through his servants, the gospel. And so he will rejoice. Let me just say this morning, if you don't know who Christ is, if you're not saved, that's the message which matters most. You can hear how to turn your life around and how to to make good steps and how to improve your finances, how to improve your health and how to do a lot of things, how to make friends. All those are good and helpful. I mean, it helps you live this life kind of a a happy sort of way. But but the most significant message you could ever hear and respond to is the message that Jesus Christ came in the world to, to die for your sins and that if you would put your faith and trust in him, he would give you forgiveness bring you into his family, you would be justified and cleansed and claimed by him and that you would have everlasting life. Joy that extends beyond the circumstance of this life and propels us to the anticipation for the glory of God to come. Amen? Amen. We can rejoice in the message of the gospel. We can rejoice that in the midst of our own weakness and limitedness that God is still at work. And some of you are going through some heavy things. Some I know and and some I don't know. And sometimes we feel in the midst of those heavy things. So we we just, we don't know where God's at. We don't know what he's doing. And yet over and over we're brought back to what the word of God says, that I will never leave you nor forsake you. That even in the midst of those heavy and difficult things that seem to, to want to crush you and destroy you and overwhelm you, that even in the midst of those, God will work them out to conform you to the image of his son. He will not fail the work he began in you. You can rejoice. that Though you do not see his hand, you can trust his heart. He will not fail. He is faithful. Amen. So let me give you a few thoughts Maybe principles to help you with this I think we see in the Apostle Paul's life. And the first is that the Apostle himself has settled with the sovereignty of God over his life. He is in jail because of his witness, his testimony for Jesus Christ, because of his fellowship with Jesus Christ. There is a comfort to come to realize the sovereignty of God over your life. God has not misplaced you. He's not forgot where he put you. He's not forgot about what's going on in your life. But, but everything in our life, we come back to the reality of God is in control. And he will lead us not only in those things, but through those things. Paul says, I'm here for the defense of the gospel. I'm here for a purpose and a reason. Though we may not always see those purposes and reasons, we can trust God that he is in control. Secondly, not only do we settle with the sovereignty of God in our own lives, you and I have to come to the terms that you're not God. That's easy for me to say to you this morning looking that way, since I'm the only one looking that way, although Kenny might look backwards, I don't know what he'll look at, but you're not God. You don't have the, the all end reach. You can't do everything. Maybe you need somebody to tell you that. And sometimes it feels like we have to have control of everything. We have to do everything and be everything and, and accomplish everything. And you can't. There are limitations that we have in this life. And, and sometimes in some trials, those limitations are greater than other times and, and other seasons of our life. But there's a, there's a reality that Paul, he's in jail. He's got a soldier tied to him and he can't do anything about it. You and I must come to the terms with our own abilities. We're not God. We can't play God. And there's great, great joy in knowing that. Do you believe that this morning? Is there a relief to know that the world will keep turning if you hold your breath? I mean, it's not going to stop turning because you will it to stop turning. It'll go on because you're not in control of everything. And what that does for me, at least, I think, and I hope for you as well, it brings me back to the source of dependence upon him. While we come to the realization of our own limitedness and, and realize that that there is a, a, an endpoint of our own abilities, we are called to pray and reach out and fellowship and enjoy the relationship with a God who is not limited, who's able to do exceedingly and abundantly all that we can ask or think. And sometimes we're so worried about all the things that, that we cannot do that we neglect the joy and the, and the fruitfulness and the, the experience of the things we can do. We can pray. We can trust. We can share. We can lean. We can cry and lament and all of that in good faith that God is with us. Thirdly, I would say, well, let me just add to that. Can you trust God with your life? Well, who else will you trust if you can't? You run out of options pretty quick. Thirdly, let me just say this. Not only do we settle with the sovereignty of God over our lives, we come to the terms of our own abilities. Uh, Thirdly, there is a greater value of Christ and his kingdom. And we'll look at that more as we consider the eternal perspective of Paul and the next week leading up to that there's a greater value and benefit in the gospel and the kingdom of god than we seldom see and sometimes god in our life lets us open our eyes to see the joy and the, and the fullness of it we rejoice because of who christ is we rejoice because his message is being shed out shared paul rejoiced in his change because god is at work through them for his glory And that is something you and I can do. We may not be given uh, the task of being an apostle to the Gentiles, but you and I can rejoice because God is at work in our life, through our troubles, through our sorrows, through our limitations for his glory. I'm reminded of this psalm, and I'll close it with this, uh, Psalms 84, 5, and 7. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, In whose heart are the highways of Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca. Or this dry desert valley barren place. They make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Not their own strength. But the strength they find in you. Um, Bow with me for a moment. Lord, we thank you for this day we've gathered together. Thank you for the, the contagious spirit of Paul that you have preserved for us in your word and your Holy Spirit, which stirs our own spirit as we see his joy in rejoicing, how it makes us makes us want to rejoice, rejoice, experience that same joy. Lord, I pray this morning for those here who are really in a dark place, Lord, I pray that you would give them comfort. God, give them hope and, and let them revel and rejoice in what they can rejoice in. Lord, I pray that for all of us. And God, I pray for those here this morning that come that do not know you that this would be the day that of salvation, that even now that they would just turn and say, Forgive me. Be merciful unto me a sinner on what they would find is mercy. And so we just pray then, believing that you can do that. In Jesus' name, amen.